Well, since we finished a book last week, Nando, that's pretty good what you put on Facebook there. We finished that book and you had a we had a good time, and you, you were thanking everybody that had uh, had a part of this. You know, everybody in this Bible study has a part in this Bible study, and of course, we always welcome the uh, side notes and thoughts and different things that the Lord gives each one of us to try to learn better who He is. And as we kind of uh, wait for the next book that we're going to go into, sometimes we take a little bit of a, a detour and uh, do some different things. And uh, you probably have the outlines there. You see impeccability. I'm going to try something, and and it's it's really not that brave because you guys catch on to theology. That's a theological term. It's probably a seminary term. As a matter of fact, in most seminaries, they usually won't even talk about this either. So we're going into uh, something that is not discussed very much, uh, even though I'm sure you probably have thought about it, it uh, I think is a, a very key term about who Christ is. And um, as we just fix our gaze on Christ, we see how holy He is, how immaculate. I mean, He is perfect. He's absolutely unspoiled by evil, isn't He? And yet, at the same time, he you know he came into this world that uh, and had immediate contact with uh, all the sin and evil and the terrible things that are part of this world, and he was not in the slightest degree contaminated whatsoever. It's kind of like whenever the sun shines upon a stagnant pool, and uh, at the same time. That sun that's shining is not solid whatsoever. It's not even touched by that. So Christ was really unaffected by the iniquity that was in this sinful world that surrounded him. And uh, that is an amazing thought when you think about, about it. And we know there are a lot of scriptures. He did no sin in First Peter 2.22. In him is no sin, 1 John 3, 5. He knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He was without sin, Hebrews 4, 15. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners in every way, Hebrews 7 says. So we take this thought, and what we want to do tonight is take it up a level with the doctrine of this impeccability of Christ. And I've found that uh, many Christians, very solid and sound Christians, have n- not really given this much thought. Um, it's it's very important, though. Not only important uh, theologically, but practically. Uh, we just don't want to be theological heads without any kind of um, practical aspect in our lives. That's really where it's supposed to lead to, isn't it? So... Uh, if you don't mind, we're going to kind of deal in with systematic theology a little bit. If you remember back a few years ago, some of you were here um, when we did uh, a series of systematic theology back at the store at Alpha and Omega. Uh, you guys weren't here. I'm, I think you that's, were that's part of that. That's the time I started. Coming. That's what I was wondering. Ellen and Janice, I know, were here. Carolyn was here. I'm looking out across. And, and uh, So, anyway... Um, we did several weeks, maybe a few months on that. I think we, we used some different systematic theologians, different books. Uh, this I, I have some books behind me. Um, 
Wayne Grudem. That's a really uh, a good book. I, I think, Eldon Janice, you guys have this book. And I think for the most part you guys would recommend it. It's, it's done very well. Very readable. I think it, it, it was actually meant for the layman. And uh, we sold them at the store uh, quite a bit. Not, not too bad for a great big book anyway. Um, there are a lot of systematic theology books out. And of course, I think of uh, Hodge. Uh, that was one that I, I had first read. And of course, you think of Calvin's Institutes. That's what these are right here. That's really systematic theology in the, in the two volumes that uh, we have there. Uh, McNeil is the, uh, the editor on that. And uh, James Montgomery Boyce has a really simple one called The Foundations of Christian Faith. And uh, I'm not trying to sell books. I used to do this at the store and put them up there, and then you guys would be, you know, but I wasn't trying to sell them. <laughs> but, uh, but you might keep some of these in mind. I've got one by Feinberg, and then uh, there are, are a lot of other ones uh, out there. Um, Erickson has one. I think it's pretty, pretty easy to read. And, of course, there are a lot of uh, good Reformed guys that have written them. But you get into systematic theology and... And it's it's just uh, taking doctrines out of Scripture and getting into a topic. So we're kind of dealing with a topic, but we definitely will use our Scripture here tonight. That's that's always what we do. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a Bible study, would it? Um, anyway, um, we start with what it is, the, the definition of it. Uh, impeccability means not only that he never sinned, but that he was unable to sin. And I don't know if you thought about that, and, and believe me, there's quite, uh, I, I don't know if you can say a controversy in the Christian realm, but there's a lot of different ideas and thoughts on this. So I don't own uh, the only truth, and uh, hey, I'm the only one that knows this. Many have, and I think throughout Reformed theology, most have down through the years, um, taken on the impeccability of Christ, but not all. And I found out just... Uh, I think it was Saturday. I was just looking at some kind of topics, and this is one I was thinking of. And I saw R.C. Sproul and uh, Ferguson. Um, what's his first name? Sinclair. Yeah, Sinclair. See, I told you about that in mind. Yeah. Sinclair Ferguson. Guys, I hugely ref- uh, respect, and you know, they have been a major impact on the a lot of my studies. But I found out they actually didn't believe in the impeccability of Christ, which is, is something because I think most of the people that they probably have dealt with do believe in impeccability. And they have their reasons and they're good reasons. And I understand. Um, but I think some of these other guys, Grudem and, and Bruce Ware, uh, A.W. Pink, uh, Shed on his systematic theology and go on endless. And some of them will definitely touch on, on this, this issue here. Um, some theologians, and I think most lay people would say that Jesus, and I think all Christians would say that, he did not sin. I think all Christians would agree on that, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, but they would say that he would be capable of sinning. Capable. Not, they're not saying that he did sin, okay? But they're saying that he's capable of that. Now, that word would be peccable, which which means... Um, sin. He, he, he could sin. Uh, or else his temptations, what they would say, his temptations would not have been real. And that's, that's, that's the thought there. So in the minds of many people, 
um, it would be that we're very fortunate that Jesus didn't sin. And if He had, then His death on the cross would have been ineffective. He, he couldn't have sinned. He had to be perfect. That's how we get His righteousness. He lived a righteous life. And uh, we're not just saved by His life or saved by His death that takes away our sin, but He also um, commuted His His righteousness to us. And uh, He fulfilled the Word of God, as He said, fulfilled the law. Um, what we're going to look at is, is He incapable? Was He incapable of sinning? And... Um, just like God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Uh, we know that God cannot sin, so we, we know that. Um, can something be genuinely tempting even if one is unwilling and even unable to do it? Can one be genuinely tempted? Well, yeah. And we'll see that in a little bit because Christ was. He was tempted. Um Matter of fact, I'm sure there was a desirability of him turning the stones into bread, for instance, that temptation came up. He didn't do it. I mean, he could have very well. He could have blown Satan away right there just by those temptations that were given. But anyway, there is a word that is Picari. And we've, we've done this before. Some of you guys might remember this. And... Um, Picari, like I said, is is dealing with with sin. Now, when we know that we, before we became Christians, had no ability not to sin. That's what we did. We just sinned all the time. That's what that was our nature. That's what we did, right? So that's called non posse, non picari. Not trying to get too technical here, but this is just Latin, but it can kind of help us maybe get a little bit of a, a grasp of it. No ability to not sin. Does that make sense? Yeah. That means we just sin. <laughs> Turn it into a positive aspect, right? Um, when Adam and Eve were created. Would you say they had the ability to not sin? Right? Mm-hmm. And would you also say that they had the ability to sin? Mm-hmm. They had that choice, right? So that would be passe picare, right? The ability to sin. So they had those two choices and they didn't make a choice, right? Um of course, if you go back to our nature now, the way it is, it's not innocent like Adam and Eve. We are in sin, right? Okay. Then there is another one, and it would be is it what we're talking about today. What is that one saying? 
no ability to sin. That is what we're talking about as far as Christ is concerned. No ability to sin. Now, that one is... I think most people would say, yeah, that's that's right, but yeah, wait a minute. Impeccability doesn't mean that he just didn't sin, but it's talking about that he had not the ability to sin. And I know what we're going to be saying. We'll say, well, yeah, there is the humans, and there is. And we'll get into that. That's why this is controversial. Um, Impeccability doctrine is that Christ could not sin, and it's becoming kind of a minority view in the sense I don't think it's even really taught. Um, And so where we're going to go with this is to see in Scripture, and then we have to just kind of use our minds and our thoughts on it. Um, at, At any rate, what we're going to first do is look at Christ did not sin. And this is what every Christian has to believe. Um... But this is important to establish. So um, among conservatives and, and among Christians, they're going to say that he was God, he was man. That's a major doctrine. He was God, man, 100%. There was a hypostatic union. And what's that? That's Boil it down, you have Jesus Christ, one person, right? One person, two natures, Right? the humanity, and the deity. Um, Many would say that Jesus, in His humanity, was tempted to sin. Indeed, would have sinned if His humanity was not joined to His deity. So it's important that humanity and deity, there is a union there, isn't it? That's that hypostatic union. The person of Christ having those two natures. Um, So, Let's look at the uh, let's look at a few gospels and then some epistles and some are probably uh, more upfront than others. In Luke twenty three forty one, kind of build on this. They are crucifying Christ. The enemies are. And in Luke 23.41 it says, And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. At least in that sense. Why, you know, they were crucifying and they realized that there wasn't really any sin, there wasn't anything wrong with what he had done as they were going to kill him. In John chapter 8... Verse 46. Which one, he's talking about speaking the truth there. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He asked the question, which one of you convicts me of sin? The implication is there, does anybody have anything on me here? Who can convict me of sin? And of course, you know, you put that together, we, we know that there's uh, some really direct, powerful passages. If you look in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that's a key passage on this. And it's quite uh, eye-opening, really, when you, when you think about it. It may be one of your favorite verses. 
but we know this rather well. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he knew no sin. He did not sin. He took on our sin, but that didn't make him a sinner, did it? But he took our sin fully. So we become the righteousness. And uh, theologians, I think, have wrestled over this, this text for years and years. And uh, they see how incredibly profound this is. I mean, this is the heart of the gospel. Just one verse here. Just thinking of one sentence, how much that really makes sense to us, right? And uh, so it, it's very clear. Um, he was sinless. He knew no sin. We've uh, been dealing with First Peter, Second Peter for the last quite a few months. Go all the way back to First Peter, chapter two, verse twenty-two. You know where I turn to? Second Peter. Mm-hmm. And it's a quote, quote out of the Old Testament: "Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth." He never committed any sin. You, you remember there was a movie that came out in the 80s? Some of you might remember. And it caused quite a stir amongst the Christian people, and it should have. It was, a, it was the last temptation of Christ. And of course there they show a, a weak human being. And, and um, of course, he, I think he had uh, relations. I, I believe he was got married to uh, Mary Magdalene, I think, and there were many things that was just totally wrong. But um, we look at these passages and we say there's you know, no doubt that he was absolutely sinless in every way. Uh, we're, we're talking not only in action, but we're talking about thought and word and deed in every aspect. Um, Hebrews 4.15, a major passage on this. Really, when we look at this, we're just looking at the glory of Christ. You know what? Because how many here can identify with Christ? Well, we can because we've been put in union with Him, but it's hard to identify somebody that has never, never, ever sinned. 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So there's the high priest. He's a high priest who feels, who who knows what we go through. He was a human while he was God. He felt everything. He felt that sin. He was tempted. He was tempted like anybody else, but he did not sin. Standing in Hebrews, turn to chapter 7, verse 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And of course, this high priest offered a sacrifice for our sins. Wow. Chapter 9, verse 14 of Hebrews. How much more... Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And that's, of course, what He does. Uh, his blood and His and His righteous 
uh, life and then his offering that cleanses us from that uh, the works that we have so we can serve him. What a mediator. But anyway, that's just looking at the person of Christ. I think we celebrate in that. Can you imagine what would have happened if he had just had one little lustful look? Just one little glimpse. A little thought of that. How about having just a touch of revenge just for a moment against some of the things that they said about him, what they did to him? How about one little attitude of bitterness? Just once. He would have blown it off, right? We're talking about things that are inward here. Um, He was absolutely sinless in every way. That's an absolute concept, isn't it? Um, I think as as we think about that, I think it, it makes us marvel that Jesus was in this world like like we are. And he lived the entirety of his life without any kind of sinful thought, word, attitude, action. And what uh, what a man, what a man God Christ is. So I, I think it makes us marvel. Uh, so just looking at that right there and just, just thinking, I think it's incredible. So that is Jesus did not sin. Is it possible that Christ could not sin? That's that's the harder issue. And so that's where the impeccability doctrine comes in. And it, it rests squarely on the fact that Jesus was one was in one person, God and man, united in just such a way that the moral actions could not be done without implicating the very moral nature of God. If it's a possibility, then it's a possibility that that would um, intercept into who the very character of God is. Now, some people would ask, and I think uh, anybody should probably ask then, well, can't you separate humanity and deity in certain ways of Christ? And we say, yeah. Yeah, you can, because Christ was human. Did he get tired? Did he get hungry? Did he get thirsty? Um, how about the cross? You know, he he felt all that, right? All that humanity. Um, but when he dies on the cross, is that deity, or is that humanity? Right? The deity of Christ and humanity are alike in some respects and different in in other respects. And so, because deity doesn't have a physical nature, the the deity can't experience even hunger, can it? The deity sense, in that sense. Because he took of the physicality of it. He's a spirit as just being God. He doesn't get hungry. He doesn't need food, does he? But the man part of him did. The moral nature unites both of them, though. And so, if he had the possibility of sin, that connects with his deity. That's where this connection of... Um, the deity and humanity come into play and uh, the possibility to commit a sin uh, would actually involve or implicate his very divine nature. Uh, Look in Hebrews 1. I've been in Hebrews a lot here. Hebrews 1, 
10 through 12. And you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. What you have there is that, well, we know the verse, He is the same today, yesterday, and forever. If He had never had the possibility to sin before and still have in the deity, how could He even have the possibility to sin whenever He is not only uh, the man God? Mark? Well, Hebrews 3, it says right there, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So, I mean, that tells you right there that because God didn't sin, God God isn't capable of sinning. If He's the exact imprint of God, then it's got to be the same, right? Yeah, uh, the very very nature. He he never gave up that nature. Right. You know, he limited himself in some things like Philippians 2 talks about, but he never gave up the nature of God or uh, put it in some kind of harm's way. Um, people think the people that don't believe this do they think that God was capable of sin too? Well, in all fairness, nature of God then that would imply that God would be able to sin too, wouldn't it? Well, that's what it's getting at. That's kind of what we're implying here. But doesn't that fly in the face of everything we learn about? I think it does. But, uh, on the other hand, you'll see some other theologians, and what they want to impress upon people is that he was tempted so much, so much like us, that that would take away that possibility um, like that he could be relating to us. He didn't feel that temptation. That's that's their rationality on it. Even though there are not explicit scriptures either way in the scripture, the one you just read there is, is good because it's talking about the very nature or him not being able to change. His nature can't change. If he never could sin before, why would it be the possibility of doing it for the time? And we know he can't sin he can't sin any any later after he resurrected, right? So they're reading that the time in the desert when he was tempted by Satan. I mean, to me, temptation is a two-way street. You get the offer, and you accept the offer, and then it's temptation. He didn't get. He didn't accept the offer. Yeah, and and, and the Bible has two different ways. God is not tempted. At the same time, we see the temptation of Christ. So, wait, what's going on here? Two conflicting aspects. And then we use that, but we're talking about, and, and that's a good one, because ultimately, we know that God will not be tempted in the sense that He's going to accept that. And I think as we look at these scriptures and go a little bit further, then we, I think we start seeing that um, that nature can't change. That and and you you just read it in chapter one verse three. How about chapter thirteen eight? And that's the one I just said. Um, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, the nature is is not, is never going to change, even though he was a human. Go uh, go back into uh, let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's look on Psalms forty five. 
6 through 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Now, there's God, the Father, anointing who? God, the Son. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments that made you glad. Anyway, there is... Ultimately, we know that he's talking about the throne, the very throne of God. There he's anointing, or this is dealing with Messiah. Um, God the Father anoints uh, God the Son. And we see that... Um, We've kind of looked at the immutability there. Uh, he was not susceptible to, to any change. It's impossible for the incarnate Son of God to sin. If he was able to sin during his earthly ministry, then what would say that um, that he can't sin now? I mean, what, what made the difference, right? Um, I think uh, saints that are now in heaven and where we will eventually be, are impeccable. They can't sin, can they? Yet the second member of the Trinity is not impeccable, <laughs> and yet dead people are. Um, sinless angels, sinless angels fell. Wow. Adam, who was sinless before we talked about his choice that he had, he fell. Uh, all the, the creation there, all these creatures. Um, the humanity, the deity, unity, a perfect union. Um, that's a little bit of the immutability. How about, how about his omnipotence? Omnipotence is his all-powerfulness, right? He possessed omnipotence during uh, the time that he was here on earth. And the things that he did, he would, he, he would choose to lay things aside to set them aside, as in Philippians two, and that being in his humanity. Humanity, but um, he has an infinite amount of power to overcome any kind of temptation, anything that would come from a created being. To have that ability to sin is kind of hard to imagine. Look in John 5. Matter of fact, uh, sin does not uh, come from God Himself, does it? It comes from, we think of the, the angels who fell, Satan. We think of mankind. Would He put Himself into a position where He could possibly sin? John 5.19 says, Therefore uh, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Um, a key thought there is He's like the Father. And that's the Hebrews 1.3 there where um was just mentioned by Barb, the the radiance of God's glory. Uh, they're so bound with being with each other. So whatever the Father does, whatever the Father tells Him to do, He does. And it's all reflective of who who He is. 
Um, wow. Okay. Who's calling me? I knew it. Peter knows better. That's Peter Salmons. <laughs> um, nice tune? Peter actually, um, it's interesting that uh, he would be calling now because there was one professor where he was going to school at, out in California there, who did not believe in the impeccability of Christ. Uh, turns out he also didn't really believe in a lot of other things they have found out since then. And, of course, one of them was, of course, I think it comes down to um, total depravity of man, justification by faith. All of a sudden, all of those big things that are the fundamentals of the faith are um, kind of taken down. And they finally discovered where he's coming from. He questioned Peter on everything that Peter was solid on. And uh, it was when you're talking about justification by faith, you can you can agree disagree on impeccability here because people do, but um, that was one of the issues that um, Peter had in some of his writings, and this professor uh, really was challenging him and uh, kind of making fun of him uh, in front of the class and such. Uh, but he's gone now. He's he's gone out of that school because. Uh, they had to do some examination on him. He was trying to get Peter out of the school, believe it or not, right from the very outset. So the enemy works in the seminaries. <laughs> anyway. In cemeteries. Cemeteries. Certainly <laughs> can be, yeah. Well, the very constitution of who Christ is proves it also. Um, I think it's an irreverent speculation to discuss that the human nature of Christ might have done it if it had been alone. All of a sudden you think, well, if we if he could just get along and have a separate existence uh, away from the divinity, away from the divine, just take that humanity part and get away from the deity. But that can't happen. That's impossible, isn't it? That was not going to happen because God had all this planned before the foundation of the world. He would not make it possible for that. Look in James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. God, by His holy nature, doesn't have any kind of ability or being vulnerable to what is being offered to Him. Granted, Christ was tempted, and, and we have a section on that, the reality of, of that. But um, I think the James passage there is getting into that aspect. Tempted into where I think Barb was talking about, where it goes further than the just the temptation. You can't help if something has been brought in front of you and your eyes see that. But when you then contemplate on it, oh, it's, and it says that in James, once we take that and then start thinking on it, and then it takes root and then we act upon that. And then he calls that, that sin. Hebrews 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. There it's impossible to lie. Uh, does he have a separate existence from, from his deity, right? Look in First Timothy 3.16. I think it's, it just shows the glory of, of God and the glory of Christ when you think about that. We can relate to Him, yet in that sense it's, it's hard to relate. And then we look at this and look at the beauty of Him. Never, never sinned. My common confession... Great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's uh, the mystery of godliness. And Christ uh, exhibited that, put it on full display uh, as He came to earth and then he was taken up in glory all the way. He's the holy, the sinless one. One who, uh, as we look at here, just marvel at. Um, I like the, um, he's called the holy one. This is in Luke 4. There's a few passages on... As a matter of fact, there's several where he's called the, the Holy One. He is the Holy One. Uh, let us alone. This is where the demons are cast out. What a business. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. How high that exalts Him. Is there such a thing as perfect humanity? Is it possible for a human being to be incapable of sinning? Might be a trick question. Is it impossible for a human being to be incapable of sinning? Well, the answer is obvious, right? How much do you think you'll sin when you're in eternity? <laughs> you won't, will you? Why is that? Because you're non passe peccare, right? You will have no ability to sin. What kind of free will is that? <laughs> that's, that's what we want, right? Yeah. And the crazy thing about it is we'll still re be remaining human there. Yeah. Absolutely human. We'll never be God. In Christ too. Right? That's right. In Christ we'll we'll be there in His humanity and of course in His deity. Um, he's the Almighty, Revelation one eight says, the absolute Master and Lord of all things. I think A. W. Pink had quite a paragraph on this. I don't know. I'll read a little bit of it. No attempt to set forth the doctrine of His wondrous and peerless person will be complete without considering the blessed perfection. Sad indeed it is to behold the widespread ignorance thereon today, and sadder still to hear and read this precious truth denied. 
the last Adam differed from the first Adam in his impeccability. So that's a thing. Yeah, they always go. That's what. That's why I always hear them going. They would take that uh, there was the first Adam, and then Jesus is the second Adam, and that's what they try to use as their then so that he could sin. That was like that was right. he was trying to do what Adam first did and failed to do. So then they try to set the So that's what Jesus came as the second Adam to show that you could do it without sin. That's what R. C. and uh, Sinclair were were using. But they weren't using scripture. That's right. Right. And anyway, he goes on, the last Adam differed from the first Adam in his peccability. Christ was not only able to overcome temptation, but he was unable to be overcome by it. Necessarily so, he was the Almighty. True Christ was man, but he was the God-man, and such absolute master and Lord of all things, being master of all things as his dominion over the winds and waves, diseases and death, clearly demonstrated it was impossible that anything should master him. So, that's a thought by Pink. Well, how about his temptations? We don't want to trivialize those because that's important to us. That, yes, he was tempted like us. He took on the full weight of all that. Uh, you think of Matthew 4, don't have to look at it tonight, but we know the temptations that were brought for him there in three parts, I guess you could say. Full range there. Matter of fact, you can go back to the Garden of Eden and see the same kind of thing that Satan used there uh, with Eve and in those three aspects. So we know um, he was truly tempted in that, in that section, um, bore the full weight. Well, there's. Well, you saw the passages though that deals with. Okay, that's where Satan or the, uh, any of the enemies, the world, the flesh, can bring that up. It, and of course, what we've already said is that he couldn't and he did not. But still, and and there are the two ideas of being tempted. Where in James it says he, God cannot be tempted. But yet, then we see other passages that. As he, um, you know, of course, the Second Corinthians five twenty one, he knew no sin, but then he took on sin. That's not really talking about temptation. But your Matthew four is still yet something that is brought up to him. He doesn't give in at all. He's not going to. He didn't. Yeah. Right. But you know, it's how we react to it. And if we, you know, somebody told somebody told me, hey, if you go out and flatten those tires, I'll give you 500 bucks. You know, somebody's going to think about that and entertain that idea. Probably nobody in this room is going to do that, but there would be people that would do that. And that, to me, you have to give in to temptation to be tempted. Well, I think that's their James passage. Yeah. See, that that is that. The other sense, though, is where the, the, the sin is there in front of him. And that's why we are saying, but he couldn't sin. Like, Didn't have the ability. I think an offer can be made, a tempting offer can be made by a tempter, but uh, then 
and so in just that regard, it makes it a temptation. But but it it can be resisted. You know, hits the hits the wall and doesn't ever uh, become a, a temptation to the receiver. So it's like it can be offered, but it does. A testing, yeah. But the word is used. The word that's used is tempted. Well, that's I mean, tested in another passage. Yeah, and and that's true too. And and of course, yeah. And that's a good good distinction there. But um, you know, I keep I keep thinking all through this uh, lesson tonight. I'm thinking about how sin hamartia is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Is that the word hamartia? Hamartia is that the one about the arrow that doesn't make its Hit its falling short, yeah, missing the uh, target, misses the bullseye, whatever. And Christ never missed his. He he never his glory was never slighted or never you know it never not missed never missed (laughs) his target in in glorifying the Father. And and so in that regard, human and God, he was always. You know, integrity. He had the integrity all the way through his uh, earthly life, and uh, so sin from you know thinking about that particular word and that concept uh, and the arrow and the target. Christ was always perfect. Jesus is always you know he doesn't ever miss it. He has integrity. So when a when a temptation comes at him, it just hits the wall and falls to the ground. Right. That's why he doesn't become tempted because he's God. Somebody else is putting the temptation there. It's not. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, it's just like walking down the aisle with the chip and cookie aisle. There, it's all there, but you just walk down the middle and <laughs> keep your eyes straight ahead. I can also, I can also see the other side of it where. Since he became man, and they said he experienced everything that we experienced, he would have had to experience the temptation there to know what we. I you know I can see both sides of it, but I just have a hard time. Well, it. turn to your Matthew four, and look what the Holy Spirit does to him. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness yeah. <laughs> to be tempted by the devil. Now, why would? God the Holy Spirit lead Jesus Christ into such a wilderness to be tempted, right? And of course to demonstrate that integrity. Yeah. And in its fullness, yeah. right? And yeah. he had in uh, those to show that he is the perfect lamb of God that has everything it takes to be our sacrificial lamb. Yep. And, and he never never failed. And it was not going to fail. What about Hebrews chapter 4? Okay. But one who has been tempted mm-hmm. in all things as we are. Right. Yet right. without sin. Right. That's exactly right. Well, he had eyes, he had ears, he had senses. But you just got through saying that he wasn't those things he didn't, uh, didn't affect him. They had to be a temptation to him if he was tempted, same thing as that, same way as I am. Um, maybe. I, I, no, I, you're backing up. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not really. I'm just trying to be nice. <laughs> you don't uh, have to be nice. Correct. Uh, uh, I'm just actually. I'm trying to stall so I can think through my thought here. But um, 
he knows he's familiar with all of the all of the things that that are, we are tempted by but without maybe the word it shouldn't be affected but the word is uh without responding to it in in a less than glorifying way. That's what I said. He has been tempted. That's what this verse says. He has been tempted. Uh-huh. But, but he was without sin. Right. But he was tempted. Right. What verse is that? Hebrews 4, uh, 15. Uh, presented with temptation. That's why I would say the temptations were all around him. He was you know, but That's not what the verse says. Well, I guess you'd have to. Well, I think it's establishing. Yeah, he he felt and he had everything that is ever thrown to us in the sense that there's the temptation, okay? And like in in James, then it also says, "Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil." Yet Jesus was tempted, but and he is God. We can't take away the the deity from him there. And that's, I think that's what we're delineating, what Barb's been putting out. The, there's the temptation where there the tempter comes, but he did not sin. We know he passed it there. And what we've put forth is that even though he's tempted, he still could not sin because of his very nature of who he is, of his deity, even though it's there. Uh, did he need that test? Not to prove to God. But it, it does prove, as we read here, how uh, high and holy Jesus is. Yeah, Barb. Okay, now I'm talking myself out of my position more. Um, because I, I was just reading, too, in Hebrews 2.18. It says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm quickly waffling instead of being... Um, well, that's our, that's our great high priest. And of course, Hebrews is presents him as the great high priest, and he has several verses that we just read, like in four. And so, there's no doubt. I mean, we don't even uh, question the fact that he was tempted. What we're saying is, yeah, he did not sin. Everybody's right on that. He was tempted, but he still didn't sin. Did he want to sin? No. And. He was entirely incapable of doing it. And what, we, what we're putting forth is the fact because of his nature, being God, the divine nature. He can't change his divine nature to make sin possible. Um, there's an illustration, I think it was Bruce Ware that presented it. Imagine having a calculator back in the 1400s and you're given a mathematics test. All right, You're the only one that has the, uh, the calculator. Do they use calculators anymore? <laughs> Texas Instruments. But you could use that pocket calculator. Nobody knows what it is. But And you, and you get 100% on the exam. You pass it and everything. It's like a breeze. Or, let's change that analogy. And suppose in 1400 you have that pocket calculator and you're given the exam and you keep the pocket calculator in your pocket and you never once pull it out, and you still get 100% just by using your head, and you get 100% on that exam. Now, 
then would say the person did not fail because of pocket calculator? No. Um, he could have used it. It was there. Before he had used it, still made the 100%. Uh, there's a better one. He uses like a guy who wants to swim a long way. He wants to make the longest swim ever. He wants to just shatter the records on it. And so... He he does he wants to do this unbroken swim, so he does all the training. He identify with the Olympics, right? Training for months and months and years. He works very hard. He builds up stamina and builds up strength and everything that he would need to to, uh, to do this world record. Uh, only problem is is that he gets up to where there's like 20 miles left, and he's had some cramping ever so often in his training. And he never has trained to do that last 20 miles. It's like the marathon. People don't do all, what is it, 27 miles of it? They train up to a certain point and then they hope they can go past that. Well, like, that's the way the swimmer would be. And he's thinking, well, if my muscles cramp, I will drown. So what he does is he arranges for a boat to follow him about 20 feet behind him and it's it's going to be close enough there that if there's any kind of sign of a real problem, somebody will be able to jump in, come along with the boat, swoop him back, and get him in, in there, pick him up, and he doesn't drown. So the day comes, he's out on Lake Michigan. All right? That's a pretty long way. Would you say that's many, many miles to the other side over there? Um, beautiful sunny day. He's swimming. Right behind him is the boat, 20, 25 feet. Guy swims and swims, hours upon hours upon hours, and he breaks a record. Now, here's the question for you. Why is it that the swimmer could not have drowned? Well, the boat is there, right? It's been there the whole time. He, he, he could not have drowned. He was not going to drown. They were going to make sure that he didn't drown. There was a mechanism there put in place that would prevent that from happening. Okay, follow that? A different question is, why is it that he did not drown? Because he swam. Do you see what we're hitting with here? He didn't drown because he swam. He could not have drowned because of the boat. Okay? The fact that he didn't drown is totally unrelated to the boat being there. He did it. Right? This is not God, but... Uh, knowing that you're going to come to a, a world full of sin, would you make it possible for yourself to sin? So why is it that Christ could not have sinned? Well, He's God. Why is it that He did not sin? As a man, He faced every temptation and given the resources that were given to Him as a man, and yet at the same time, He was God. And I'll wrap this up. Yeah. I'm reading from Hebrews in chapter 12. In Jesus' struggle, it was not easy. We right. have never had a struggle against sin. Right. We struggled. This says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And he did struggle to the point. point. Shedding drops of blood in the garden. So that's encouraging, isn't it? And he couldn't. I I believe that firmly that he couldn't possibly have sinned 
but it still came at a cost to me. You betcha. And that's the whole point. Yeah. That is amazing. That's that's a God that we have. That's a good way to wrap that up. That's beautiful. What kind of God do we have? I mean, that is just, that's powerful. To take on what He did, the worst kind of suffering for us, our sin. Our sin. Wow. You know what? That makes you want to worship Him. The more I thought about this doctrine, I never really had a lot of deep thoughts on it. It never really occurred to me. I just, you know, hey, he never sinned. But it makes me in more awe of him, you know, even in his humanity and and knowing that. And, And you know what? It was that he became more human to me. I already know that He's God, but that there's the humanness that you just talked about and to go through what He did and to say that one day we too will be unable to sin. We won't want to sin, but we can't sin. The problem is today is that we don't want to sin and we still do sin. We battle and struggle with that. And because we know that He went through all this, it should keep us from maybe next time we think about sinning (laughs) to keep from it. You know, I'll never be God. I'll never be divine. Nobody here ever will be. Uh, Nobody will. But you've been given the hope that you don't have to continue in that sin. Exactly. Right. And that's the the beauty of it. That's, that's, That's right. But whenever I think, I too, you too, We'll never sin. We will never be capable of sinning ever. And we too will be without sin. Just knocks me out. And when I think of that, it's like, that's what we're shooting for. And we'll be able to worship Him in a way that we are kind of uh, kept from, in a way, because of the, the flesh. And we come so far short in everything, you know. But by His grace and by His uh, His greatness that uh, He's allowed us to, to see, uh, don't you just want to be sinless? Don't you long for a day of the impeccability that Jesus Christ had? And uh, we behold Him as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, aren't we? And so we adore Him. We we marvel at Him. We marvel at Jesus. And we should just be preoccupied with marveling at this wonderful person we know. Let's pray. Eldon, could you close this Father, we thank you for this night. Thank you for all we've heard. Lord, help us to get this principle straight in our mind and, and be able to worship a God who's perfect, mm-hmm. who's always been perfect and always will be perfect. Thank you, Lord, for the hope you give us through Him in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.